Welcome to The Lover's Hole, where we're rereading the Patrick O'Brien, Aubrey Matron series. You're with Mike. And you're with Ian. And we're right at the beginning of Master and Commander. Ian, can you catch us up with where we stopped last time and what we might be looking forward to today? It'll be my pleasure, Mike. Last time, we spoke with our friend and natural philosopher, James Albright, uh, and we completed the second half of Chapter 2 of Master and Commander. So we're still, like you say, early in the novel here. Um, Jack Aubrey had been disappointed by his trial of two long 12-pounder cannons, but he traded them in for a new main yard after an exhilarating day's trial run out and back in the Sophie. As that was going on, Stephen had had the disappointment of seeing the Sophie sailing away, but the relief of seeing her come back, and he got the chance to join the crew later that same day. We ended the chapter with Jack and Stephen and Lieutenant James Dillon setting sail to escort a group of merchant ships. This time, we get the beginning of Jack's first actual mission afloat as commander. Um, it gives us nautical terms. We get beloved characters. We get favorite phrases, at least favorite for you and me, Mike. Yes. We get tales of past actions, references, of course, to the name of the podcast. We get cataleptic terror. You can guess who's going to suffer that. Um, we get original verse. We get a new watch and quarter bill. We get tea without goat's milk and potential tension between jack and dylan and jack and the crew oh thanks ian boy there's a lot to look forward to in this chapter that's for sure mm -hmm. uh, well we we've got this kind of very typical o'brien opening which is just full of so many of the things we love about these books o'brien starts two bells in the morning watch found the Sophie sailing steadily eastward along the 39th parallel with the wind just abaft her beam. She was heeling no more than two strikes under her top gallant sails, and she could have set her royals if the amorphous heap of merchantmen under her lee had not determined to travel very slowly until full daylight, no doubt for fear of tripping over the lines of longitude. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, you know, we can't unpack every every O'Brien reference all the time, but just for fun, Ian, you know, I think there's a couple we could dig into here. Definitely, like you say, he's packing so much into just one paragraph. We have two bells in the morning watch. That means one hour into the morning watch here, um, sailing eastward along the 39th parallel, which means we're sailing along the line of a latitude that is 39 degrees north of the equator. Which, thankfully, is in the Mediterranean. <laughs> uh, by the way, you can check that out as well on cannonade.net. This is the moment where I think we really get to start to benefit from enjoying following along on Tormohorn's fabulous cannonade.net website there. The wind just abaft her beam, meaning that the wind is coming from just behind square, if you like, just behind the square on. Um, healing no more than two strikes means that as she heals over, two planks width of her, uh, her, her wooden timbers are visible. She's under top gallant cells. Top gallant cells are the small cells that go above the top cells 
but not as small and specialist and skimpy as the Royals. The top gallant sails normally worn when uh, the weather is good and the wind is fair to moderate. Those Royals that she could have set, well, she would have only set them if it wasn't for being slowed down by the convoy. So we get a little bit of characterization of the convoy here. Um, an amorphous heap. Well, that's a heap that's kind of disorganized and kind of unstructured, slowing down the Sophie because of their rather sluggish, rather conservative captains. And an actual joke, an actual honest-to-goodness O'Brien joke, traveling very slowly for fear of tripping over the lines of longitude. Of course, as any any schoolboy knows, the lines of longitude are entirely theoretical, but we have this really charming idea that the lines of longitude are real and hard and you could actually trip over them. Yeah, I, I, it's just fabulous, you know. And how many authors can kind of put this all in at a 5 a.m. scene in yeah. a book, right? This is great. Well, and he continues, and you've talked so often about how, you know, O'Brien paints us a picture sometimes, and he does yeah. that just now. Yeah, he says, the sky was still gray, and it was impossible to say whether it was clear or covered with very high cloud, but the sea itself already had a nacreous light that belonged more to the day than to the darkness. And this light was reflected in the great convexities of the topsails, giving them the luster of grey pearls. Wow. I like that. How, how many writers start with beautiful writing like that uh, and, and with that kind of style as well? Right. So we've, you know, we've got O'Brien's jokes. We've got these nautical terms. We've got this gorgeous cinematic reference. And we, you know, and then we zoom right in at 5 a.m. to our love Jack Aubrey here. And he clearly is delighted to be on his first ship as, as commander, his first mission. He, you know, he greets the Marine sentry by his door, goes up on deck, looks over the rail at the convoy in the sea, looks across, you know, kind of up and down the ship. And O'Brien writes that that sent such a jet of happiness through his heart that he almost skipped where he stood. So he's he's kind of like a little kid at Christmas here. Yeah. You know, he, he walks over to greet Dylan on deck, and O'Brien says, overcoming a desire to shake his hand. So <laughs> we've talked, you know, with with our guests in the past about how, you know, you, you don't do a lot of handshaking back here quite like this, and, and certainly not between officers like this. Oh, I'm so happy. Shake your hand, right? But it's, you know, here we are with Jack so ebullient, so happy. And he's telling Dylan that, you know, they've really got a lot to do today. They've got to muster the ship's company and decide how to watch and quarter them. So, Ian, you know, watch and quarter. I think about drawing quartering, and this is clearly <laughs> not that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's pretty far from Jack's mind right now. Right. So watching and quartering, they're going to think about how they're going to organize the ship. They've, they've, they've got a hierarchy of, like, ranks, but they haven't really got an organization of who's going to do what. So watching and quartering means figuring out who's who's going to stand a watch. Remember, they're going to go to two watches instead of three, so there'll be a port watch and a starboard watch. Who will stand no watch? Um, these are the people who are given the name of idlers, the people who don't have a, a sailing job to do through the night, so they get to spend the night in their hammocks, at least until the morning, as we're about to discover. So who will be on which watch? <laughs> and then quartering what jobs are everybody going to do um who's going to be rated at what level who's going to have what job in which gun crew um who is going to have a sailing job who's going to have a fighting job what are going to be their action stations 
And we also get this idea of people having the job of uh, the, the described as being a waster, waster with an I. Um, it comes from the fact that only the best hands got to have professional sailing jobs being employed aloft or in the actual sailing, and the others are employed in the part of the ship that we call the waste. And very often in the in the, what are called the quarter bills of Her Majesty's ships, you'd see people like stewards, bandsmen, um, tradesmen, artificers, whose action stations would be in the waste of the ship, that is to say, kind of huddled in the middle of the ship, um, rather than being either aloft or at a gun's crew. So they're going to have to figure all that out. Like I say, they've, they've got a bit of a hierarchy, but they don't have a structure yet. And that's a good thing for a captain and a first lieutenant to be talking about. And more importantly, Jack would love to have a happy, optimistic, upbeat conversation with his first lieutenant. In fact, on a day like this, as we're going to see, Jack wants to be friends with everyone, at least pretty much everybody who's aboard his ship. And this is not the first time in this book, nor even in this chapter, that Jack Aubrey is going to really misjudge what Lieutenant Dillon thinks, and particularly what Lieutenant Dillon thinks of him. Too true. All right, good. So Dillon kind of takes Jack's comment about this watch and quartering and says, yeah, absolutely. Things are really confused and disorganized at the moment. He calls it at sixes and sevens, right? With all these extra men they've taken on board and haven't assigned yet here. And Jack says, you know, while Dylan sees this as, as confusion and disorganization, Jack sees it as, hey, we got enough men to fight both sides of the ship simultaneously, which no man of war could do. Um, then Jack asks if there are any old Charlottes amongst the new men. And, and Dylan says that there's there's only one. And he and Jack start talking about this HMS Charlotte going up in flames when Dylan was in charge, temporarily in command of this hired cutter, the Dart. Um, he had tried to get his people to go to the Charlotte's aid while it was burning. Uh, and they really were reluctant. They were, you know, People who were never shy in a fight, never shy of boarding the enemy, you know, could certainly work hard against going into a lead shore, but they were not going to sail into this burning ship whose guns were kind of going off randomly, whose magazine could blow up. And Dylan concludes by saying, you know, there's little to be done with a thoroughly unwilling crew. Um, and Jack thinks to himself, you know, he's thinking about his own crew on this first command saying, you know, they're, they're now with this new watch, they're going to be deprived of sleep. They've got all these extra men, you know, with this new watch system, as you've described before, Ian, they're not going to be getting their eight hours now. They're going to be sort of four on and four off. And all their women have been sent ashore and that they may be a bit of an unwilling crew themselves. <laughs> and it's, it's funny that, funny and ultimately tragic when you think just how similar James Dillon and Jack Aubrey are, they're both very empathetic leaders. They both know the value of people feeling motivated. Neither of them are kind of tyrants or floggers. They're so closely aligned in how they want to be leaders and how they want to conduct themselves. Aye, aye, aye. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And we'll hear, as you say, in even more about how similar in a lot of ways Dillon and Jack are yep. here. Now, Ian, we got this reference to the old Charlottes, the old Charlottes. Yeah. Um, now, you know, a lot of our listeners sometimes will say, you know, which of these things are real ships and which of these things are real historical events? How about this one? Well, the Charlotte, HMS Charlotte was a real ship. She was a ship of the line, a first rate, 100 guns, um, launched in 1790. So would have been a fairly new, fairly modern ship at the time of, of these novels and of this action in which um, she was lost. 
she was Lord Howe's flagship at a very famous battle, the, the, the glorious 1st of June, kind of spoken about in the whole of the rest of the Navy for, the, for several decades to come. In 1800, having accidentally caught on fire, however, she exploded. And she was carrying the flag of Lord Keith, husband later on of uh, our friend Queenie, who we heard about, and also going to be a secondary character in our story with Jack later on as well. A horrible story. 673 out of 859 men were lost in this fire. Um, and she's called the Old Charlotte because HMS Queen Charlotte, a newer ship, but with the name of the same queen, was launched in 1810. So we get all of this from our noble source of the Patrick O'Brien Muster Book by Anthony Gary Brown. Get it wherever you get your local books from. Exactly. You know, we're going to try, you know, especially as as we go back through Master and Commander at a slower pace, to point out a lot of the references that are available. You know, for folks who who want to dig in some more, and and certainly to always credit our sources here. So Jack, you know, decides he's going to climb up in the sails, climb up to the tops to consider some of his thoughts about changes to the rigging to make the Sophie sail better. And remembering that he's a captain now, he decides to go through the lubber's hole. Ah, we've Yay. heard his name before, right? And we're, you know, we're delighted to have him join us here. And and this and a couple paragraphs from now, you know, are what gave the podcast its name. So um, I'll let O'Brien describe this. Ian, you want to you want to take us through O'Brien's description of this great scene? Yeah, sure, I'd love to. Thank you. Ever since the invention of those platforms, some way up the mast called tops, sailors have made it a point of honour to get into them by an odd devious route, by clinging to the futtock shrouds, which run from the cat harpings near the top of the mast to the futtock plates at the outer edge of the top. Uh, by the way, in parenthesis, this was the part where our friend Jeremy got really, really, really fed up. Right. right. <laughs> They cling to them, to these footwork shrouds, and creep like flies, hanging backward about 25 degrees from the vertical until they reach the rim of the top and so climb upon it, quite ignoring the convenient square hole next to the mast itself, to which the shrouds lead directly as their natural culmination, a straight, safe path with easy steps from the deck to the top. This hole, this lubber's hole, is, as who should say, never used, except by those who have never been to sea, or persons of great dignity. That, that's you and me, Mike. Yeah, and our listeners. Of... <laughs> <laughs> and when Jack came up through it, he gave Jan Jakruski, ordinary seaman, so disagreeable a fright that he uttered a thin scream. <gasps> I thought you were the house demon, he said in Polish. <laughs> and Mike... Apart from this very nice and delicate introduction to the the geography and the schematics of the Lubbers Hole, I love this random non sequitur of a joke about somebody mistaking Jack Aubrey for a Polish house demon. Really funny. Right? Oh gosh. Well, Jack is is perfectly at home in the rigging. We learn, you know, he's he's looking out, you know, ten plus miles over the horizon. He recalls that you know he's served in much larger ships and much bigger ships, so he's been much much higher than this. And and you know, remembers in his youth falling asleep there, being sent up for punishment. Sometimes he remembers losing his dinner as the ship rolled up here. And as he reminisces, the dawn lights him. He's kind of the tallest thing, so the the light starts with him. And it moves down the top gallant sail all the way to the deck. And O'Brien writes, tears welled up in his eyes, blurred his vision, overspilt, rolled down his cheeks. 
they did not use themselves up in lines upon his face, but dropped two, four, six, eight round drops slanting away through the warm golden air to leeward. He, he kind of takes one last look at the convoy's assortment of ships. And, and then O'Brien writes again, he blew his nose and with his eyes still fixed on the spar-laden cat, he reached out for the weather backstay. His hand curled around it mechanically with as little thought as if it had been the handle of his own front door, and he slid gently down to the deck, thinking, hmm, one new landsman to each gun crew might answer very well. Ah, so, you know, (laughs) so many things going on here, Ian, you know. It's lovely, isn't it? As well as all this great characterization of Jack, there's a bit of characteristic Patrick O'Brien ambiguity as well. He doesn't explain to us the emotion. He doesn't explain to us even exactly where the tears spring from but we learn that jack is a man who who cries right and we we don't know i mean maybe these are kind of tears from the physical blinking into the sunlight of an early morning are they tears of joy at his new situation he's taking in all of his command here are they tears of nostalgia as he thinks about where he's come from and being the the, the boy climbing the mast and we're free to to put that pattern together and O'Brien's just showing us this little moment really up close and personal with Jack. I've talked a couple of times now about how this book in these first few chapters seems to me to be wavering a little bit as to who's the hero. But right now in this chapter, we're with Jack and he's the person that we're empathizing with. And he's a, he's very easy to empathize with, right? He's very easy to like. Yes. And I, you know, I, I love, you know, for me, especially being a man who cries easily from joy, as well as from sadness, as well as from, you know, so many things I, you know, I empathize so much with him here. And I love the way, you know, he's up here, he's taking all this in. And in the back of his mind, he's going back, you know, over, okay, how are we going to arrange this crew? Hmm, let's see, what do I do with my new landsmen, putting them, you know, and it's so it's always, always, working on how to make the ship better, how to do things better. Yeah. So it's it's nice. Now, we've got, for Jack, a wonderful day, starting beautifully. For Stephen, it's a very different situation. Ah, oh, poor Stephen. <laughs> it's 6 a.m. I'm, I'm going to hazard a guess that even, even for a naturalist and a philosopher, um, somebody who is more musical and more cerebrally inclined probably stays up late. I'm guessing 6 a.m. is an hour that Stephen hasn't often seen before the text says pandemonium broke loose pandemonium that is to the waking stephen maturin and we go on and hear that he's never heard the unnatural wailing the strange arbitrary intervals of the bosun and his mates piping up all hammocks there's a mad rushing of feet a great terrible voice calling all hands all hands ahoy out or down out or down rouse and bit rise and shine show a leg there out or down here i come with a sharp knife and a clear conscience. And this also reminds me of the bosun. I can't remember the name of the guy who played the bosun, but his yelling and cussing is in the background of almost every scene aboard HMS <laughs> Surprise in the in the Peter Weir movie. And they've really got to a T this idea of the, the kind of cussed voice of the bosun being the context of, uh, for all of the sounds of the ship. But again, we, we're getting this laced with some nice Patrick O'Brien nautical stuff that we're just meant to take take as it comes uh rouse and bit is, is re- referring to the way you rouse out a coil and then fasten it to the bits um he's really threatening that he's going to cut down people's hammocks that they're still asleep in um, showing a leg means putting your leg we think it means your own leg but it could also mean the leg of your lady friend uh, <laughs> putting your own leg over the side of the hammock to show that you're awake and that you're worth not cutting down 
So there's this whole little extra bit of Royal Navy ritual here. And Stephen is very orally acute, I think you can say. He is very easily disturbed and notices things in the oral environment. He hears the sound of 50 to 60 men rushing up the hatchways. He hears the elm tree pump running, the grind of holy stones on the deck, the chain pumps expelling the night's water from the bilge. He wonders if it's an emergency, a, a battle or a fire or some kind of desperate leak. Perhaps the crew have forgotten him and haven't warned him. So he jumps up. And another little reminder of the fabric of the ship around him. He stands up and rams his head straight away against a beam. And, and, and Mike, there's this lovely moment when the steward comes in and, and takes care of him here. It's great. You know, the steward comes in, he realizes what's happened, and, and he's saying to them, it's these old beams, sir, in the usually distinct didactic voice used at sea for landsmen and on land for halfwits. You want <laughs> to take care of them, for they are very, very low. And, and Stephen just looks at him malevolently, you know, and, and that look shocks the steward who starts to ask him, you know, perhaps what he might have for breakfast. <laughs> Stephen's having none of this after with its splitting head. Well, oh. there's, there's a relief on the horizon, though, for poor old Stephen and his bad morning mood because he's about to encounter bacon, right? Right. Jack makes a Macbeth reference. He says, I smelt the gunroom's bacon on deck and I thought it the finest smell I had ever smelled in my life. Araby left at the post. And so we're like, oh. Araby left at the post. Lady Macbeth in the play says, all the perfumes of Araby will not sweeten this little hand. You know, won't well, get this smell off of her. But Jack saying that the smell of bacon you know, leaving Araby at the post as if those perfumes were an Arabian mare left at yeah. the starting gate of a race. <laughs> Jack with his mixed metaphors. And, and you know, it, it, as you've said before, Jack with his kind of how he maybe remembers Shakespearean plays compared to a general audience. Oh, yeah. This, this, this is the schoolboy thing. What, what's Macbeth included? It includes something about witches. Yeah, something about all the perfumes of Araby. Something about the forest moving... And there's a fight with swords. Uh, that, that, that's enough. Right, right, right. We'll, we'll hear more of these later in the canon. And Jack had his, his seagoing interaction with Shakespeare, right? Well, you know, and I, I love this phrase. They're saying that Stephen, who had a great leeway to make up in the matter of vittles, so he, you know, he hasn't eaten much lately. Um, and, you know, there's also this, you know, we know that Stephen's new to the maladies of semen, but they're talking about breakfast here. And Stephen says, and conceivably, there might be onions as an anti-scorbutic. So here he is like, oh, we'll have some onions, you know, of course, to prevent scurvy, you know, medically, uh, <laughs> medically prescribed here. And, you know, as they as they talk about perhaps what's on their morning menu, you know, we hear one of our favorite lines, you know, you are my way of thinking entirely. And, and a few paragraphs later, we hear with all my heart. So, you know, we're getting a lot of classic O'Brien lines right through here. And we get the introduction. We, we kind of referred to him a couple times here, but now the introduction with a classic line as, you know, O'Brien says Jack is saying, light along that bacon killick and the coffee. I'm clemmed. <laughs> Stephen tells Jack how well he slept better than with the tincture of laudanum. Uh, 
mm-hmm. an opium product we'll stick a pin into. Yeah. And Stephen apologizes for all this long sleeping and for having just, you know, gotten up. He's now unshaven because he says, you know, he was kind of worried about shaving there and wonders if sailors cut themselves badly know, shaving at sea with the boat tossing around like that. No, 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 they don't. But they do have a great number of burst in bellies as well as a great deal of pox. So hernias and syphilis, uh, which Stephen can sort of say, yeah, I get that with semen, (laughs) given given their labors and their fun. And and it says there's more of a job for the surgeon to do than just taking care of the occasional shaving nick as well. Right, right. So, Mike, it's it's this big day of doing this organizing and figuring out who's here. So we get this really nice set piece event of all hands being called on deck and the reading of the muster book. They're trying to account for all the men who are aboard, make sure that they're here and that their names are kind of correctly entered in the quarter book. There's a lot of diversity among 89 crew members, as we're going to hear. We get the articles of war read aloud, just like a sermon on a Sunday, uh, regarding, as the, as the text says, the governing of His Majesty's Navy, ships of war, and forces by sea. And with all of this really sort of biblical-sounding language, we get a list of all the mortal crimes, um, lack of courage, cowardice, striking of a superior officer, um, and sodomy, all listed with this idea of a ringy punishment, shall suffer death. And a lot of the social code is described for us here. And by the way, the fact that the... The seamen are all kind of nodding along and going, yeah, yeah, this is familiar. This is what I know. Yeah, now I know I'm back home. It's also not seen as massively oppressive. It's right. seen as, like, perversely, the common sailors are thinking, yeah, okay, I, I I, think I know the rules. And as long as the officers abide by the rules, that's probably going to be okay in my late 18th century view of society and myself. So the power of custom. And th- this is... A very, very familiar thing for Jack and Dylan and for the crew. I don't think it's so familiar for Stephen Maturin, though. No, no, no. I think Stephen's probably wondering a bit, listening to some of these things, and and continues to wonder at kind of how people interact with each other on the ship, as as we've talked about before. And, you know, then Jack introduces Dr. Maturin to the other officers, you know, kind of formally for the first time, for ones uh, that Stephen hasn't met. And even though Stephen suspects what's coming, when he sees Dylan, he is shocked. And, and O'Brien writes that his face automatically took on a look of veiled aggression and of the coldest reserve. And uh, O'Brien tells us that Dylan's shock is even greater because unlike Stephen, he really hadn't even heard about this Dr. Matron. And, you know, uh, it says that Dylan's color changes, but he does not show any emotion. So he's got, a, you know, uh, not a perfect poker face, but a much better one. And then Jack suggests, you know, with all the work that he and Dylan have to do with this watch and quarter, Jack suggests that midshipman Mowat shows Stephen the ship while Jack and James work out these watches. Yeah. And this is another great introduction, not only to an important secondary character, Mowat, and a couple of his proclivities, but this is also going to be the time when Stephen gets to really understand a little bit more about this weird physical environment that he's in. So young Moat, by the way, I don't think we're told exactly how young Moat is. He's clearly under 16. He's probably, you know, early high school age, I'm going to guess. And he's got a very, very boyish way about him anyhow. Asks Stephen if he'd like to start in the top first, as Jack had suggested. And 
Stephen says, you go ahead and I'll imitate your motions. I'll put my hands and feet where you put yours. And as they start to climb, Stephen's not really attending. His mind is drifting off to his thoughts about James Dillon. He remembers being with James Dillon in a group called the United Irishmen. And the text describes that as a society that had at different times in the last nine years been an open public association calling for the emancipation of Presbyterians, dissenters and Catholics, and for a representative government of Ireland, a proscribed secret society, an armed body in open rebellion, and a defeated hunted remnant. Wow. And we hear a little bit more about how there's been this general pardon, but the lives of important members are still in danger. And you know, association with the United Irishman is a pretty grave kind of offence against the British state. And none of them now are in regular contact. So people don't know where they stand. And pretty clearly, therefore, Stephen Maturin doesn't know how he stands with James Dillon. And they've been, or at least Stephen has been, quite evasive so far. Stephen Maturin says the text was not afraid of any vulgar betrayal, nor was he afraid for his own skin because he did not value it. But he had so suffered from the incalculable tensions, rancor and hatreds that arise from the failure of a rebellion that he could not bear any further disappointment, any further hostile recriminatory confrontation, any fresh example of a friend grown cold or worse. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and bless him, Moat doesn't realise the turmoil that's going on in the in this person that he's leading up the rigging here. And although Stephen, we learned, is not afraid for his skin on an intellectual level, as he climbs, his body is telling him um, that it's in a state of rapidly increasing terror. 40 foot up on this ladder of moving ropes with the ship, continuing to lean over, and he sees only the sea beneath him. And Mike, the text here says, his grip on the ratlines tightened with cataleptic strength and his upward progress ceased and i I, i've been there i'm not a big fan of heights that you know the the whole thing just shuts down your legs and your arms and your whole brain says no 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 no. i'm just gonna cling on for a while here and hope hope that something better happens he remained there spread eagled while the varying forces of gravity centrifugal motion irrational panic and reasonable dread acted upon his motionless, tight-cramped person, now pressing him forward so that the checkered pattern of the shrouds and the crossing ratlines were imprinted on his front, and now plucking him backwards so that he bellied out like a shirt hung up to dry. And I'm right there with Stephen. And again, interesting things happening here. I thought we were with Team Jack, but now we've got so up close to Stephen and all of his vulnerabilities that we're with Team Stephen now here as well. And uh, we're getting this really great contrast, Mike, here, I think, between Stephen and Jack, where they want to be and their, their physical and emotional courage and their relationships. Jack wants to be friends with everyone. He loves climbing the rigging. He loves the ship. Life is good. Um, he's a bit naive and a bit blind, but that's working for him. And Stephen is cautious and careful and really reserved in his relationships and really terrified of the physical environment around him. This gives me a reason to think this friendship isn't going to go all the way in a flash. There, there are some things that they're going to have to learn about each other for this friendship to really mature here. Yeah. And they've, and they've got, you know, it, we're, at least we're starting to see that perhaps they have some real differences, as you just pointed out. And as we know from life, sometimes those differences kind of help us help each other 
And sometimes those differences can really drive us apart. So yeah. it's going to be fascinating to watch here. Absolutely. Speaking about, you know, differences, Moet and Stephen going up <laughs> the sides are, are, are clearly uh, very different here. So in the ropes here, Moet slides right down the backstay, you know, kind of appears right next to Stephen and below him and gently takes his ankles and tells him to keep climbing as he places hmm. his feet. And, and O'Brien writes, and after one more hideous swinging backward lunge in which he closed his eyes and stopped breathing, the lover's hole received its second visitor of the day. And, and you know, this is, I think, Ian, this is the moment that cinched it for the two of us, you know, with, with Stephen and Jack both coming to visit the lover's hole. How could we call the podcast anything else here? So, you know, um, and, and I love it how Moet, you know, guides Stephen right to the lover's hole. And then he climbs around on the futtock shrouds and pulls him through the lover's hole in, you know, into him here. And then there's this, this great moment here. Um, and so, you know, Stephen clearly not himself here, if you will. Uh, but Moet goes immediately into, this is the main top, sir, said Moet, affecting not to notice Stephen's haggard look. The other one over there is the foretop, of course. And Stephen kind of interrupts him. He says, I'm very sensible of your kindness in helping me up. Uh, oh, thank you. Oh, sir, cried Moet. I beg. Well, and that's the mainstays. Uh, they're just set below us. And, and that's the four stays. You know, forward, and you you never see one, but on a man of war, and and so you know, Stephen here again, we're talking about differences. I, I don't think you're going to see many sailors admitting to fear or weakness or no. any of that. Stephen is like, <laughs> yeah, man, I just had it, and you know, I really appreciate you doing this for me. So he's so human, and with all that he's got on his mind, with Dylan here, with all this it's brand new to him, you know, he's I, I can't help but think a little bit overwhelmed. Although Stephen's a pretty capable guy. And I can't help but think that Moet perhaps is a bit daunted. You know, here he is mm. with the captain's guest. He certainly doesn't yep. want to lose him overboard here. And this is the great physician that they hope will become the ship's surgeon and who will then be an officer you know, up, up above here. So, um, you know, Moet can't really acknowledge any weakness in his guest or his superior officer here, but wants to acknowledge Stephen's Thanks to him. And, and, and I think a, a minor spoiler alert, these two both turn into great, wonderful, lovable, kind people. I think that's a spoiler we can cope with. Yeah. <laughs> well, as as Stephen catches his breath and as his pulse subsides, as he's just about made it into the top here, and as Moet starts to think, well, how am I going to begin to tell this lubber about this new physical environment that he's in? Perhaps... Our listeners need a moment to catch their breath. Perhaps our listeners need a moment to take stock of the rigging and go grab yourselves a glass of grog and we shall be right back. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. I hope everybody's kind of caught their breath from climbing up the rigging there. And Ian, we then jump into many pages of Moet's explanation here. How do we want to handle this? Well, we could pause and explain every word. I think, A, it would take a long time. And B, I'm pretty sure that that's not what O'Brien wants us to do. And yeah, you and I have said before that 
the way all of this nautical jargon works, apart from just being dazzled by the scholarly technical completeness and authenticity of it, it's it's the scenery. It's the it's the it's the it's the tractor beams and dilithium crystals, this particular kind of a ship. And I just really enjoy, not so much from the pedagogic point of view, but just from the character point of view, how Moat really thinks deeply about how to get this explained to Stephen the landlubber here. Um, he explains the masts, the sails, the rigging, and all the different parts of the ship. And if you're new to all of this, then maybe this is an opportunity to catch up. Um, maybe this is an opportunity to take your time through these paragraphs and pick up a source. Um, we really love a book called A Sea of Words. Um, the Gun Room has loads of word lists for definitions. There are online naval slang dictionaries. There are loads of ways of keeping track of all of this. The good news is if you go looking, you'll find that O'Brien's references will check out here. The bad news is if you go looking, it'll really, really slow down your progress. So we'll just say that Moat does this really friendly job. He's got an interesting challenge here, which is his choice of vocabulary. And Stephen at one point says, you could not explain this maze of ropes and wood and canvas without using sea terms, I suppose. No, it would not be possible. And Moat replies, using no sea terms? I should be puzzled to do that, sir, but I will try if you wish it. No, for it is by those names alone that they are known in nearly every case, I imagine. And maybe you as a reader are just going to enjoy the nautical detail breezing past you. We certainly did, right, Mike? It's, you know, it's, it's fun to, to relish this and they feel all the words kind of rolling around on your tongue. But I, I think there's a bit of a writerly game going on here as well. Patrick O'Brien's playing a bit with the idea of highbrow literary criticism. And the idea is that you can't analyze the text except by analyzing the text. If you try to explain language using other language, then eventually you reach a dead end. And you've just got to take the language on the page for what it is. I, I don't know if he's being you know, postmodern or post-structuralist or metaphysical or anything, or if it's just he's having fun with the language. Um, only he could tell us. Well, and, and to your point, Ian, you know, one of the things that I love is in the midst of all this jargon, O'Brien keeps the story going, keeps building yeah. the characters, keeps weaving the plot in. So, you know, I think that's my encouragement to everybody is to say, don't give up. Don't get yeah. confused or distracted. You know, Ian, you mentioned the gun room. That's hmssurprise.org. There's all yeah. kinds of resources and pointing to all kinds of resources for anything you want to dig in on. And if not, just keep following along with the characters and the stories here. I think that it happens very clearly because as Moet's going through these descriptions, we find Stephen kind of asking him almost these random questions. And, and we're told that he's just trying to keep Moet talking, you know, perhaps yeah. to take his mind off the heights, <laughs> but perhaps, you know, to help take his mind off or to give him some room to process all of this emotional conflict with Dylan. At one point, as he's hearing about the mast, Stephen thinks, and, and O'Brien writes, Castlereagh hanging at one masthead and Fitzgibbon at the other, thought Stephen, but with only the weariest gleam of spirit. And, you know, it's kind of an odd, oh, an odd yeah. line here. You know, here's Stephen, you know, thinking about Dylan, thinking about the United Irishman, thinking about all these masks and everything else. And then he sees these two guys hanging there and has only the weariest gleam of spirit, like he's almost glad of it, perhaps a little bit, but can't quite bring himself here. Ian, what do we know about these guys? Castle Ray and Fitzgibbon. 
Yeah, great question. Again, these are real people and a real situation. The United Irishman was a, a real cause. Um, Robert Stewart, Viscount Castlereagh, was British Chief Secretary for Ireland between 1798 and 1801. He supported a union between Britain and Ireland, and Maturin kind of did not, although, as we'll hear later on, he had quite a nuanced position when you come down to it. Castlereagh resigned when George III rejected the idea of concomitant Catholic emancipation, which Stephen Maturin supports. He supported emancipation for a whole bunch of other religious minorities as well. Let's turn to Fitzgibbon. John, first Baron Fitzgibbon, was Lord Chancellor of Ireland from 1789. And good news for Irish people, Britain doesn't have a Lord Chancellor of Ireland anymore. The people of Ireland more or less rule themselves. This guy Fitzgibbon was an opponent of the United Irishmen, although he was, as it happens, from an old Catholic family. Um, he opposed all kinds of religious and political reform in Ireland. And he again supported the union between it, the British and Irish crowns um, that was kind of confirmed in 1800-1801. So we're picking up on some of the key characters and some of the key memories and associations that are in Stephen's mind as he's distractedly dealing with all of Moat's briefing here. Exactly. Meanwhile, then, Stephen's pleased that Moat understands his profession so well. I mean, that, that's a relief, right? When the dentist is drilling your tooth, you want to know that the dentist has read at least the page on teeth in the textbook. <laughs> and he's impressed by all of these measurements. And this is clearly one of Moat's little bits of nerdery. You know, he's taken his tape measure and he's measured everything apart from the new main yard. Um, Moat explains that he hadn't passed for lieutenant last time because he hadn't been across some of these minor measurements and he's ready for, for being tested again. And as he continues to listen, Stephen thinks how absurd it had been to affect not to know James Dillon, a very childish reaction, the most usual and dangerous of them all. And for all Moat prattling on, Stephen is still pondering on this Irish James Dillon connection here. He and Moat watch together as the Sophie sets her royals, those highest of the high sails for the getting of the last ounce of boat speed out when it's really, really fair weather. And we remember Mr. Brown's advice back in the dockyard to Jack, your good captain never sets his royals. Nasty, unnecessary flash, gimcrack things. And apparently that's a sign that says Jack Aubrey's going to be a very different captain for the Sophie than the Navy and the former crew of the Sophie have been used to. They watch the bosun who's directing the men to prepare to set the new mainsail, a, a, a proper mainsail for their new mainstay, we learn. And Moat describes the scene in verse. And Stephen is really struck by this. He points out, first of all, in, in passing, that the bosun is very free with his cane and wonders why the seamen don't turn around and knock him down. And then he says, so you are a poet, sir, beginning to feel that he could cope with the situation. And by the way, this is that little first look at Stephen's views on liberty and oppression and corporal punishment and authority. We also get a first glimpse of Stephen's appreciation of poetry, as well as hearing Moat's actual poetry chops here. As they start to head down to the deck, Moat advises that it's a wonderful plan not to look down. And arriving safely on deck, Stephen's surprised that he'd been so timid. And Moat declaring, there you are, sir, all a tanto which is a phrase used when a ship, having had some of her masts struck down, has re-hoisted them and all the rigging is, is set to rights. And there is Stephen's back on the deck and all of his physical rigging appears to be set back to rights here. Um, we've got a great source for you there. Naval History of Great Britain by James Williams, dated 1902. So a very venerable old source. 
So as Stephen and Moen have been up in the rigging, Jack, Dylan, and the clerk, Mr. Richards, are reviewing the draft of new men. Most of them were petty offenders sent by local officials. They, you know, in the text, they call it the beetle, you know, to be pressed into services. And they included uh, foreigners who'd come looking for work. Uh, They included out-of-work Englishmen. And there were three exceptions, three middle-aged seamen, Pram, a former second mate, a Danish gentleman, and two Greek sponge fishermen who they believe are called Apollo and Turbid. Um, they don't know why these guys have been pressed. And with a complete count of the men and an assessment of their abilities now in hand, they create these new watches. You know, who's, as you said, Ian, who's going to be stationed? Who's going to be doing what? Who's going to be sleeping when? You know, who's going to be where with what jobs here? As Jack and Dylan and Richards are finishing that, Moet and Stephen continue the ship's tour down below. And now they're into the midshipman's berth, this small little room where the midshipmen live. And Moet enters and he's, you know, he's teasing an even younger Babington, another character we'll know and love here. And, you know, Babington and Moet are kind of going back and forth to each other, as you can imagine, a little bit older and a little bit younger schoolmates would. And Stephen sees that Babington is studying trigonometry when they've interrupted him. And, and, you know, Babington is kind of complaining that he had just about had the answer until big, you know, this Moet shows up. And Moet immediately breaks out and says, you know, kind of like earlier in the math, in canvassed birth, profoundly deep in thought, his busy mind with signs and tangents fraught amid reclines in calculation lost, his efforts still by some intruder crossed. So another burst of original verse, uh, you know, by Moet, our budding poet here. And, you know, they continue to talk about the quarters, about the ship, about, and the three of them are talking about, you know, Stephen's kind of asked, well, you know, kind of what's a ship and how's that different from other things? So they have all these different definitions of ships and boats, and it becomes very nuanced and confusing and clearly prejudiced towards whatever definition is used. There's the clear superiority of royal naval vessels. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That, that's a presumption, right? That's a given. Absolutely. And I don't think Stephen is yet able to figure out whether this beautiful lilting poetry in iambic pentameter is like, that's how all people talk below decks. Uh, he's about he's about to find out. They're moving, he and Moat, towards another part of the ship. It's very dimly lit. Stephen stumbles over a man on the floor, his feet shackled to a bar. And the man calls out, by the way, not in rhyming iambic pentameter, can't you see where you're coming to, you grass-combing bugger? And Moat, with a certain primness, informs Stephen that the man is in irons for being rude. <laughs> yeah, right. And we get this really clear picture, which we've already had hinted at, but it's really brought to life for us here, just what a cramped and imposing space this is. Stephen asks if the next space along the deck here is for the inferior officers, and he learns that it's where all 77 hands and marines are going to sleep. And Stephen says, but it's physically impossible. And he learns about the 14 inches of hammock room per man, which turns into 28 inches when half of the men in the mess are on deck on watch. And Stephen learns to his horror that there are no windows. There's no bathroom. The sick men are going to berth in the same room, perhaps closer to the, to the scuttle. Well, said Stephen Maturin, if ever a man with the jail fever or the plague or the cholera morbus sets foot in this apartment... God help you all. Amen, sir, said Moet, quite aghast at Stephen's immovable, convincing certainty. And 
apart from this reminder of the environment, we get Stephen and Moat as characters really nicely put together there in, in one sentence. And Moat's not aghast at the idea of disease and death. He's aghast at the idea of somebody from the outside being so sure in their criticism of a naval institution like, like birthing in hammocks. Right, right. Ah, oh. well, Jack and Stephen are now back together. You know, Stephen's finished the tour. Jack's finished his duties. And, and Jack offers him for the first time a little bit of grog, the drink of the ship here. And Stephen compliments Moet to Jack, you know, what a fine young man he is. And Jack says there's nothing pleasanter than good shipmates. Then Jack, you know, starts to take Stephen into his confidence a little bit and says he's really worried that he's upset Dylan. He says that as they were reading the list of names on the starboard watch, you know, Jack had heard a number of Irish names. And he says, more of these damned Irish papists. This is what he had said to Dylan. At this rate, half the starboard watch will be made up of them, and we shall not be able to get by for beads. Oh, and Jack explains, you know, they meant it pleasantly, but he noticed a damned frigid kind of chill. And he said to himself, why, Jack, you damn fool. Dylan is from Ireland, and he takes it as a national reflection, whereas I had not meant anything so illiberal as a national reflection. Of course, I only that I hated papists. So I tried to put it right by a few well-turned flings against the Pope, but perhaps they were not as clever as I thought, for they did not seem to answer. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, Jack. Oh. Uh, by, by the way, th th this is bang up to date. Yeah. When I say I hate X, it doesn't mean I hate Y. It means I just hate, uh, you know, he's completely tone deaf about identity. How, uh, uh, Irish, that's completely different from Catholic. You know, if I make Irish jokes, are there different jokes from Catholic jokes? No, 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 no. He's completely failed to see this point about James Dillon's identity. And by the way, by extension, Stephen's identity. Yes. And yeah, well done, O'Brien, for writing about stuff that would be current in 2022. And uh, Stephen, and I don't know if this is, as an admonishment or a polite sort of roast. But Stephen asks Jack if he, Jack himself, hates papists. And Jack says, well, yes, I, I hate papists, the same as I, I hate paperwork. Um, he explains that one of his childhood friends, and I think, again, this is Queenie, he refers to her right. as the pretty, pretty girl who taught in navigation. Her mother married a papist, and she was so upset that she studied mathematics and Hebrew. And he rattles off these flings about the rebellion and Stephen explains the more nuanced reality, which is that United Irishmen were primarily Protestants with Protestant leaders trying to unite Protestant and Catholic and Presbyterian Irishmen, which is a nuanced point that's invaded most people who've tried to govern Ireland and particularly the north of Ireland for the last 250 years, but never mind. Um, it's clear that Jack is frustrated by the day's paperwork and he says, well, I'm ready to hate all of them, Papists, Anabaptists, Methodists, Jews, all of them. Just like the Tom Lehrer song. But he's especially vexed, actually, that he's upset Dylan. And I think he's vexed as well that Dylan hasn't quite got in with the naval bantering humor that Jack regards as just part of kind of daily discourse in the mess here. As I was saying, continues Jack, there is nothing pleasanter than good shipmates. He, meaning Dylan, has a sad time of it doing a first lieutenant's duty and keeping a watch, new ship, new ship's company, new captain. And I particularly wished to ease him in. Without there's a good understanding between the officers, a ship cannot be happy. And a happy ship is your only good fighting ship. 
And Jack goes on and tells Stephen that Nelson believed this and Jack knows it to be true. And he's about to ask Stephen to help out with the Dylan situation when Dylan himself walks in. And this is a fabulous scene here that we've got Jack gone sideways with Dylan, not understanding that he would have put himself also sideways with Stephen, were Stephen not a bit more compassionate and willing to be a little bit of a Socratic teacher here with Jack. But then we see, a, you know, slightly more about Stephen. O'Brien writes partly for professional reasons and partly because of an entirely natural absence. Stephen had long ago assumed the privilege of silence at table. And now, from the shelter of this silence, he watched James Dillon with particular attention. So, you know, Jack's about to ask him, hey, can you know, kind of help me butter up Dylan and, you know, smooth things over? But Stephen's got his own issues that Jack's completely unaware of. And, you know, we've had some of our listeners, I, I, this is kind of a, a, a mild spoiler alert here. Some of our listeners have asked us about another, if you will, professional interest of Stephen's, which is very clear in future books and wondered, you know, if that was going on here. Mm. So, I, I just kind of like to say maybe this idea where O'Brien writes for professional reasons, you know, Stephen assumes this silence at table that maybe this is a little allusion to another professional interest of Stephen's. But we'll say no more here. After all, loose lips sink ships. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Stephen thinks that Dylan looks almost exactly the way he used to when he knew him. How and and he notes that despite being a much smaller physical man than Jack, he seems to take up as much room as the much larger Jack. So back to your point in about how, you know, we keep getting these little hints, how Jack and Dylan are, are very similar here. Yeah. But he also notes that Dylan's former typical look, that look of being just about to laugh or just about having, you know, kind of worked out some private witticism has disappeared from his face. Again, that's also something that we'll come to find is very much part of Jack. You know, you, you almost always see this. But for Dylan now, uh, Stephen notes, it's been replaced with what O'Brien calls a grave, humorless Irish countenance. And although he's civil and attentive and, and not sullen or resentful, you know, he's not given to smile. He's not given to be loose the way he had been in former times here. So... At dinner, Stephen is kind of watching Dylan. He's also watching Jack. He's watching the provisions that Jack had bought, you know, kind of at the last minute to bring on board to entertain his guests. And this ham and wine that were clearly, as Stephen said, the sort reserved for officers who buy their own provisions. That is, you know, kind of in Stephen's mind, he's saying, you know, he's been sold subpar goods because the proprietor knew that, you know, here's a captain ready to go to sea quickly that doesn't know any better. And has some money at the offing. So I'll just give him some of the worst that I've got and send them off. Yeah. Killick is going to have to step up on this matter in the future, I think. But never mind. For now, it was Jack. Right, right. <laughs> Too true. And poor old Jack has got the consequences to deal with here. He tries to carve this ham uh, described in the text as a hog with a long-born crippling disease. <laughs> oh. And Stephen and Dylan communicate with a bit of subtext. Dylan asks if perhaps they've met before. And Stephen says he's often mistaken for his cousin with the same name, that being a shame because his cousin has the look of an informer. And no one is more despised in their country, Ireland, than informers, even though the country's swarming with them. 
And this little exchange of kind of nods and winks um, hits home with Dylan, who says, I am entirely of your way of thinking and asks to have a glass of wine with Stephen, who says, to use our favorite phrase, with all my heart. And these, these, are, these are great lines from the canon that we're going to hear over and over again. And you're going to hear them at the end of most episodes of The Lover's Hole 2. Great. A glass of wine with you. <laughs> and after, after dinner, we get the, the, the drawing of the cloth. That is to say, they've cleared the table of the main eating and drinking implements and they're passing the wine around. Jack asks Dylan to tell the story of the action that he had in the dart. And Dylan tells him about this, this eight four-pounder cutter that he was in temporary command of with 13 men and a boy. And he, he tells a story about conveying a king's messenger, about, by the way, he remembers nicking his chin while shaving, and Stephen says, ha, with great satisfaction, harking back to the conversation earlier on about shaving. And they had this relatively paltry armament, and they came across this enemy, and they figured that since they would be able to outsail one of these enemies, then they would attack them separately before they could join forces. And we get this conversation about this action with a relatively small crew, um, with some English passengers aboard as well. Um, they'd exchanged fire. This French ship had had their foreyard carried away. The French ship had caught fire. The privateer had struck, and Dylan told the captain that he'd come back and sink her if she tried to get away. And off he went after the second ship, the second privateer. And as they approached, he gave her a broadside, which due to being smartly aimed and chosen just at the moment when the roll of the two ships was just at the right level, they shot her through the hull below the waterline and she sank with all her sails set. Mike, it's a very dramatic story. It's told in the usual deadpan naval style by Dylan. But A, Jack Aubrey is eating this up. And B, this I don't know if it is or not, but this sounds like a really Cochrane-ish action. Right. And I, I, as I'm listening to this, and of, of course we're going to hear that Jack is really applauding, once again, Jack and Dylan are so similar in their, their temperament, in the kind of action that they value, and in the way they conduct themselves making decisions in the heat of battle. Like, Dylan is a mini Jack with red hair, or perhaps the other way around. Right, right. You know, this idea of, you know, going up three enemies, going kind of straight at them and, yeah. you know, really taking them on rather than saying, you know, how do I get the heck out of here and doing it with, against such high odds. I mean, yeah, I think Jack is just so, he just loves this. And it kind of, you know, back to remind us that Jack had said earlier to Stephen that perhaps Dylan should have been promoted ahead of Jack because of an action like this. But Jack and Stephen both congratulate Dylan on this noble action, and Jack proposes a toast. Once again, as you say, so tone deaf. Renewed success of Irish arms and confusion to the Pope. And Stephen, instead of, you know, kind of Dylan's earlier reaction to Jack's faux pas, Stephen kind of laughs and says, well, to the first 10 times over, and that even though he's a Voltairian, he won't drink to the second. He's not going to drink to confusion to the Pope. He says, the poor gentleman has bony on his hands, and that is confusion enough in all conscience. Besides, he's a very learned Benedictine. <laughs> so Jack, completely unaware of what he said here, amends his toast to confusion to bony, and they all happily drink to this. Voltairian, you know, it's kind of a fascinating allusion back to this idea of, you know, we're you know, we've still got, especially with Stephen, this enlightenment thinking, this kind of the, the, the dominance of reason. But with Voltaire, an interesting combination of enlightenment, reason and religion. 
yeah. where, you know, Voltaire, like many of the Enlightenment sort of philosophers and learned gentlemen, was a deist. You know, yeah, God started things, but then God kind of left us to ourselves here. But he was somebody who, because, and, and he believed, Voltaire did, that he was a deist out of reason, yeah. not by faith, and therefore sort of says, yeah, you know what? We should have freedom of religion because nobody knows any better than anybody else. Certainly none of them should be whipping us with, you know, what God wants us to do and have a duty to enforce what they know secretly that God believes. But there's a, you know, there's a fascinating article in the Irish Times in March 2nd, 1996, called Champion of the Enlightenment, where you read about O'Brien kind of using a very similar quote. So clearly O'Brien is bringing himself in through the, the person of Stephen Matron here. It's really great, isn't it? These little bits of philosophy that go miles, miles deep, really early in the story, really important connections to Stephen Maturin. And if you know about Voltaire and you know about philosophy, you can really understand a lot about Stephen's motivation later on. If you don't, the, you can get by just fine with Stephen's a learned cove who can quote Voltaire at the dinner table. Right. And the conversation continues with just Jack and Stephen. Dylan has to leave the table to go and uh, and take watch. And Jack is really praising up Dylan's victory. He, interestingly here, he's praising it up to Stephen in the absence of Dylan, and that may be a false step for Jack. Let's see. Lord, said Jack, what a pretty action. 146 to 14, or 15 if you count Mrs. Dockray, the wife of the English guy. It was just the kind of thing Nelson might have done. Prompt, straight at him. And by the way, th- th- we now get a little bit of dialogue that was taken up again in the Peter Weir movie, Master and Commander, uh, but spoken by different people than Stephen and Jack here. Uh, Stephen says, did you know Lord Nelson? What kind of man was he is? Jack describes him as being small and frail, but like a charged atom. And comes back up with this line about, pass me the salt. And also the famous line, never mind maneuvers, all go straight at him. And he's connecting that kind of conduct to what he admired about what Dylan had done in the story that was told here. And here we get this great moment of a story about Nelson being offered a boat cloak on a cold night. And Nelson says to the person who offered the cloak um, that his zeal for king and country kept him warm. And was it any other man, any other man, you would cry out, oh, what pitiful stuff and dismiss it as mere enthusiasm. But with him, you'll feel your bosom glow. And that's not Russell Crowe, that's Jack Aubrey. Right. And he's this comes out just before he's interrupted. Once again, as a scene of some intensity and some real discovery for us gets undercut by some routine, slightly comic minutiae, as Mr. Richards comes in with more paperwork. Anyway, we've we've established Nelson as a hero of Jack's. We've established this great common attitude to sailoring and warfare between Dylan and Jack, if only they could realize it of each other. Ah, and we'll kind of come back to this all later on in the canon, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, part of this paperwork that Richards has walked in with are a number of letters written by Captain Allen that I guess he dictated and were left to be written out fair, as they say, you know, to kind of do the final draft and send off. And the top one you know, Jack looks at it and then tells Stephen, you know, this is just so like the service that here in the, you know, we're in the middle of talking about patriotic fervor and they want me to sign a letter like this. And it's a letter, O'Brien, you know, gives us the text of it. 
that orders a court-martial for Isaac Wilson, the man that Stephen had tripped over earlier, the one who was, you know, in irons for, quote-unquote, you know, uh, being rude. (laughs) And I guess now we know perhaps what Moat was saying. It's for the crime of sodomy on a goat. And, you know, here we have another moment, you know, in the midst of this sea tale where O'Brien is kind of lifting us into this hothouse ship, looking deeper into these characters and about, you know, how they see things perhaps the same or differently from people of their time. So Stephen makes an observation about how the law always seems to harp on the unnaturalness of sodomy. But Stephen says, "I, I know two judges and two barristers who are pederasts. And, you know, Jack's like going on saying, you know, he's not all for this either, that this man is going to be hanged with boats from every ship in the fleet watching. Stephen says, you know, that's you know a little extreme. And Jack says, well, it's an, an infernal bore. You know, he doesn't want to waste all the time of the men testifying. He doesn't want the Sophie to be a laughing stock in front of the entire fleet. Now, he says that he does believe, as kind of custom of the service, that the goat must be slaughtered and then served <laughs> out to the men who informed on Wilson. You know, and and Stephen goes further than that. He says, well, you know, perhaps, Jack, you could just land them both ashore. Let's do none of this. And and then Stephen says, and it's I think it's a little poke at O'Brien humor and perhaps Stephen humor at Jack. You know, separate shores if you have strong feelings on the moral issue. <laughs> you, know, you feel that the, that, that the man and the goat shouldn't be together. But then just sail away. And, you know, Jack says, you know, perhaps there's something in what you're saying. And he's considering it and then asks Stephen if he'd like milk with his tea. Now, we already know from the dinner at the Crown that Stephen takes milk with his tea. (laughs) And Stephen asks, well, is it cow's milk or goat's milk? Learning that it's goat's milk, he says that, you know, perhaps he'll have his tea with no milk. So, uh, (laughs) Stephen, uh, again, here's O'Brien saying, you know, here's Stephen, who's very enlightened, and he's saying, you know, let's not condemn this. Yeah. Let's not do this. But but although, either way, I, I won't have any of the goat's milk in my tea. So that we, we all have a little bit of all of this in us here. Yeah, we're all a little bit prejudiced. And it's it's not a completely liberal, completely enlightened version of, of, of the view either. You know, Stephen uses the word pederast to describe barristers and judges. Pederast right. is somebody who likes boys. And right. that's... That's a real bad trope that people associate being gay with having a having a taste for the underage, and that's absolutely not the thing. So yes. we're not getting a correct 21st century version of Enlightenment here. We're getting an imperfect early 19th century version of Enlightenment, but at least we're getting it, and at least we're hearing these two characters debating it, and I'm, I'm fine with that. We talk about evolution in natural philosophy. What we're getting here is a, a bit of a evolution just a little step forward and a little step sideways and sometimes a little step backwards. Yes, yes, especially if you happen to take milk yeah. in your tea. Right. Anyhow, in, in the gun room, the place where the officers mess, well, this has caused some confusion for Stephen at various points because he doesn't know why the gunner doesn't live in the, live in the gun room. Anyway, set that to one side. In the gun room where the officers are sitting and having their meal, the master, Marshal, and the purser, Mr. Ricketts, are talking about how much room there is on the ship and the impact of all these changes coming from Jack's new organization and new quartering and new tactics and new rigging and new everything else. Ricketts says he doesn't know how these changes are going to work out. And Marshall, there's, a, there's an important juxtaposition here because Marshall's gay and has a bit of a thing for Jack already um, right. and is very willing to praise Jack and to think positively about him. Ricketts, on the other hand, is a bit 
conservative and a bit, and a bit old-fashioned about how he sees Jack. Rickett says all these capers, he says the main yard, the guns, the drafts, the drafts that he says Aubrey pretended to know nothing about, new hands with no room for them, two watchers. Rickett says his son Charlie says there's a great deal of murmuring in the crew. And Marshall agrees. He says, yes, there have been changes. And the captain may be a bit flighty, but he'll be fine if they're standing officers. That means you and me, Mr. Ricketts. Um, and Watt and Lamb, the boatswain and the carpenter, seem to like him. Dylan's a good lieutenant. The captain's a good seaman, as they've seen sign of already. And Marshall thinks things will get a bit more lively around here, but it'll be okay, he says, if everybody else supports the captain. And Ricketts thinks the master is just a bit soft on Aubrey and believes that if these, what he calls these capers, keep up, and he believes that it's the captain's nature that means that they will keep up, the captain will be put out of the Sophie pretty quickly. So, you know, Ricketts sort of sums it all up. And Ricketts, we know, is the guy that Jack caught with his purser's tricks and his threatened, you know, his son. So, you know, we got all sorts of people for all their different reasons here. Ricketts says, for a brig is not a frigate, far less a ship of the line. You're right on top of your people and they can give you hell or cause you to be broke as easy as kiss my hand. So Ricketts, you know, almost like Jack had threatened him, threatening Jack here. And again, this, you know, what we talked about with O'Brien in this hot house, tight, enclosed space, and particularly in the Sophie, which is even much smaller, as Stephen has discovered today here. So he tells Marshall... Uh, you know, that a captain needs more than seamanship. And, you know, Ricketts has this really interesting description here. Any damn tarpaulin can manage a ship in a storm, he went on in a slighting voice. And any housewife in breaches can keep the decks clean and the falls just so. But it needs a headpiece tapping his own, that is, tapping his own head, and true bottom and steadiness, as well as conduct to be the captain of a man of war. And these are qualities not to be found in every Johnny-come-lately or in every Jack-lie-by-the-wall, neither, he added, more or less to himself. I don't know, I'm sure. (laughs) End of chapter three. Yeah, Ricketts certainly not willing to give his endorsement here. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah. he's setting out the exam question there for Jack. He's saying, you've, you've got to show more than you've shown us so far. And, and kind of, I think, saying here to Marshall and to himself, and you're not going to do it. I'm sure you're not going to do it, right? Yeah. Johnny Come Lately, most, most of us know what Johnny Come Lately is. We had a look for what does Jack lie by the wall mean? And lie by the wall is a bit of an obscure phrase, and it's hard to see how it fits in here, how you parse it. Um, lie by the wall is taken often to mean someone who's dead but unburied, um, or in the case of a ship being laid up in dock and useless. So neither of those is a, is a happy image for a, for a Jack, particularly not for our Jack. And, right. And, and Mike, it looks like there's tension brewing on the Sophie. Jack has offended Dylan, um, may or may not be able to recover that. He's upset some of the crew with the watch patterns and the, his new way of sailing and fighting the ship. It's been chaotic with all of them, the mad dashing around so far under his command. The purser is not his friend. The purser's son may not be either. After all, he's they've both now been threatened by Jack. Uh, Marshall and Lamb and Watt seem to be more impressed with Jack than the other officers. We're not completely clear, though, on what Dylan's thinking. 
And we, we only have Jack's report and our own sensibilities that tell us that Jack's stepping all over this relationship and is continuing to do so even when he tries to make things better. And hearing Dylan's action story, I think we have to agree with Jack's assessment that perhaps Dylan was more deserving of promotion more quickly than than Jack had had encountered. You know, we've been going through this chapter, and it's clear, you know, Stephen and James Dylan seem to have a better understanding of each other, but it sounds as though there's still a good bit of tension between former United Irishmen, including Stephen and James Dylan, and Jack and James Dylan, you know, starting here with this big misunderstanding, you know, I, I hate to see that, as you had said, but there's still a full convoy behind them, mm-hmm. all these ships behind them, a journey ahead. And as Dylan's action demonstrated, there are plenty of opportunities for action, for glory, or perhaps, as Mr. Ricketts suggests, for more capers. Mm. Well, I, I think that all lies ahead of us, Mike. I don't know. What do you say to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? I would like that of all things. and Stephen, you know, meet up on deck and they're both discussing, you know, what should we have for bacon? Uh, What should we have for (laughs) breakfast there? There you go, Sam. Number two.